Welcome to Folksy, y'all. I'm here with the great, lovely Mashka Wolf this uh, this fine, fine evening here in the woods around the campfire. Uh, she is an actor and producer, one of the founding members of Babes, a production company. Uh, and she has also carved out a very interesting and popular space on TikTok as an educator of Soviet-era film and history. So welcome, Mashka. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Yay. Oh, I'm excited to have you here. I am just... Uh, I am just so, so stoked because you have picked a film that I did not think anyone on my list like would pick on my list. <laughs> well, I kind of had to because of all the Soviet TikTok stuff. So I had to pick the one that takes place in the former Soviet Union. That is entirely fair. I mean, it's never a, a requirement, but it is a joy <laughs> yeah. for, for sure. And, you know, for those of us uh, or for those of the listeners who may not be as familiar with how you got into the subject of study, uh, uh, can you enlighten us? Yeah, absolutely. So I was actually born in the Soviet Union um, in Moscow. And then when I was five years old, my family emigrated to Los Angeles. And so obviously I grew up with Soviet parents, you know, Soviet Russian parents and um, family. And there's actually a big community of uh, former Soviet immigrants in Los Angeles and West Hollywood specifically. So people from all over the former Soviet Union and Russia and Ukraine and everywhere. Um, so I've kind of been familiar with that culture for a while. And one time during the pandemic, I decided I was going to get on TikTok and I was making these little comedy videos. And there was this one, I wanted to write a short film about um, like being Russian and Russian film. And I love it. I decided that instead I would make like a TikTok series. And so I made the first episode and I was just kind of like talking about being depressed and watching Soviet comedies to cheer myself up. Okay. And it got like 30,000 views. And I thought, oh, people want to hear about this. They want to hear about Soviet films. So I just kind of dropped the short film idea and started doing these little breakdowns of Soviet comedies where I would show clips from the film and talk about what it was about, maybe give my opinion. And it really took off. That's incredible. I absolutely love that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. And, and I love it. Turned into, and then it turned into, you know, um, people have a lot of misconceptions about the Soviet Union, I think, especially in America, because of the Cold War and because we were the enemy for so long. So, you know, people would comment on things like, oh, you couldn't have property, you couldn't own property in the Soviet Union. And I'd make a video explaining how that's actually a misconception. That's awesome. This is so incredible. I also love that this is another little like pandemic baby project. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so wonderful stuff has come out of the pandemic, like kind of in, in the wake of, of isolation and, and all of this stuff. And we're sharing so much more about our communities and with our communities, which is so, so dope. And I love that you have the space to share your community. Uh, especially because I actually, I was on your TikTok earlier today and I saw that you made a video at one of my local grocery stores, my favorite one to go to actually. <laughs> so it is, it's so cool to, to get to see this kind of enlightenment that you're providing. So thank you for, for getting into that space. It's dope. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Yay. Well, as I do with every episode, before we begin, uh, may I ask, can, can you sacrifice something to the fire, to the gods of, of the podcast? Absolutely. I will sacrifice a tin of pickled herring. I love this. From my Soviet um, <laughs> pantry. Love it. 
I love it. I was just going to ask you a question, but I love that you brought food. Oh, okay. Wait, I didn't, I didn't get, I don't understand how the whole thing. Oh no, it's all good. No, 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 no. It's totally, totally fair. Uh, This is kind of like what I like to do at the beginning, just to kind of, you know, so we can all share something together and kind of like ponder a question. Um, So if you don't mind, uh, I might ask of you this here evening to sacrifice to the fire. What is the riskiest thing that you have ever done while traveling planned or accidental? Oh man, the riskiest thing. That can be like skydiving or getting married or totally (laughs) just went off the map and got lost for 48 hours. I went to an all-you-can-drink karaoke bar in Tokyo. That's incredible. (laughs) And that was a mistake because (laughs) it's all you can drink. They just keep bringing you booze. And um, at some point the train stopped running. But the bar stays open and they start again at 6 a.m. So at oh some point goodness. you're at like 1.30, you have to make the decision. Do we leave now and go back to the hostel or do we just party until 6 a.m. when the trains start up again? And of course, if you've been drinking and singing, you're going to pick the second thing. And yeah. so somewhere there's a picture of me passed out in the Tokyo subway with my head resting on a step, just spread eagle. And I I made it home, but I don't remember how. It, I was with some my friends who I was traveling with, of course. But yeah, that was I had never been so hungover as I was. But what day. a story! What an <laughs> incredible moment to have had, and the fact that there is photographic evidence. I love that for you. I know that you might not love it, but <laughs> but here you are getting to share this wonderful story and reminiscing about that photo. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my goodness. That is great though. That is so incredibly wild. Uh, especially just because you, you've chosen uh, one of my favorite travel folk horror films. There are a few of them. I think a lot of the, I think the most popular one is probably The Ritual on Netflix. I um, love that one. I, I love, love it. The Ritual. Oh, it is so good. And of course, Actually, I said that was the most popular one. That's a lie. The most popular one is Hostel. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) They did, in fact, make three of them. Uh, But this is a really, really special film also because when it came out, no one saw it. Literally no one saw it. And of course, for those of you who are waiting on bated breath, the film that we are going to be talking about today is The Chernobyl Diaries. So I have a question. Do you... I'm... Is this folk horror... You know, that is one of the things that I'm really excited to talk with you about because this film for me falls under a tragic misgenreing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm actually really excited that that we're kind of getting to dig in with this because for a little context, we're starting to look at films from like the late 90s and the aughts era. And this mm-hmm. film falls at the tail end of that era and is consistently, I would argue, you know, this misgendered because we were misgendered. Wow. <laughs> misgenred because we weren't quite sure where to fit it kind of in the wake of you were either getting, you know, Scream or, or uh, you were getting Saw. You know, it was a really kind of like mismatched time. And of course, in the middle, we get films like the remakes of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, all of that kind of stuff. And at the beginning of this kind of era with Saw, towards the middle of the era, and what really kind of revitalized that genre of um, found footage horror that we got out of like Blair Witch and stuff like that was Paranormal Activity which uh, was directed by Oren Pelly, who also, uh, I guess he didn't direct this film. He produced it. 
he produced it and he wrote it. It's actually one of the few films that he actually wrote, um, which I thought was super interesting. I want to say that he wrote it with Carrie and Shane Van Dyke, who also they they're the duo who helped write "Don't Worry, Darling," which came out. In mm, yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. the The director was Bradley Parker, but it's based, I want to say, on like Oren Pelly's original script. That he had kind of conceptualized. I listened to some interviews with him. He talks a lot about how with this film in particular, he kind of went in with this idea and this notion and a lot of the acting is actually improv. And so the auditions were mostly just like kind of being like, okay, you're trapped in a van and the lights have gone out. Go. (laughs) I, you know, I read that and I hated it as someone who used to be an actor and used to audition a lot. I guess I'm still sort of an actor, but it's, I don't know, it's, it's kind of a power play, I think, that, that casting directors and directors do on actors, like, oh, do these silly things for me, because I can do that, I can tell you to do that, that it rubbed me the wrong way, I hate it, (laughs) give someone a script, they're an actor. I appreciate that because, yeah, you know, words words are important and it is wonderful to get to kind of come up with them on the fly. And for comedy, it's great. I sometimes find for drama, it should be used sparingly. <laughs> um, or at least that's my personal opinion on the, on the matter, just because, yeah, I, I live in kind of the same camp with you on that one. But I will say that for those of you who are not familiar with the film, A group of tourists hire an extreme sightseeing tour guide who takes them to the abandoned city, uh, Ukrainian city of Pripyat, uh, which I have no idea if I'm pronouncing correctly. So sorry if not. (laughs) Yay! My mismatch of horrible Midwestern Southern accents that happen when you live in the middle of the United States is just not good for foreign languages <laughs> um russian but, is is difficult for english speakers definitely totally fair yeah um but in the abandoned you, for those who are not familiar with pripyat it is a former home to the workers of the chernobyl nuclear reactor and so when a vehicle malfunction kind of strands them in the middle of the still mildly radioactive but very supposedly empty town they realize that they're being pursued by what appears to be an entire ecosystem of radioactive man-eating things. So if you have not seen the Chernobyl Diaries, I highly recommend taking a moment, going and checking it out now, coming back. If you don't give a shit, let's step closer to the fire and dig in. Uh, the film also stars Jesse McCartney, who I guess used to be like a Disney kid singer. I had no idea. Uh, Jonathan Sadowski, Olivia Taylor Dudley, and uh, Dimitri Dichenko? Dichenko. Let me- oh, man, <laughs> I should have looked this up before I got on the call, but yes. Here's the crazy thing. I did, and I'm still hesitating. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so this film, you know, came out during this time. I believe it was yeah, it was 2012 when this film came out. So this was kind of the follow-up to Oren Pelly's big found footage phenomenon, Paranormal Activity, which I don't know if you got a chance to see in theaters, Mashka. I, I did. did, yes. Yeah. It was it, incredible. It scared the shit out of me. Oh, a hundred percent. And that is what that film does one of my favorite things, which is it fucks with its own audience. (laughs) Because I was at one of the screenings where they left the lights off for two minutes straight before the credits came on. And so everyone was freaking (laughs) out. It was such a visceral experience. And so with this being the film that kind of 
everyone knows Oren Pelly's name for, here comes Chernobyl Diaries, which was kind of thrown into these categories of, is it a found footage film? Is it a disaster porn film? Because, you know, again, coming out of the aughts with Hostel and Saw, we were seeing the term torture porn getting tossed around. And so porn was suddenly being thrown on the backside of a lot of genres. I It's definitely not found footage because it's no. not shot by the actors, you know, in the world that it takes place in. Um, I don't know if it's disaster porn. It's not. It's not the other kind. What it's was definitely the third not one? torture porn. It's no. not torture porn. No, it's the scenes are not that gratuitous. Um, Truth. I also, yeah. for the record, I don't love the term torture porn because I think that the minute that you you create a genre, the, the term torture porn, kind of similar to how Gatiss coined the term folk horror, actually, uh, when he did his little 2010 uh, horror anthology miniseries, Eli Roth actually coined the term torture porn and as a result the minute that the idea that a film genre is sadistic you can open up no critical conversation about it because people just the word itself makes you think moralistically about <laughs> what you are about to to view as the voyeur and and i like to think of it as post 9-11 fear cinema <laughs> personally mm. <laughs> but but that's just it there's a lot of terms kind of being thrown around by whoever kind of can get that splash on the internet at this point in time and as a result people went in i think with a lot of expectations about what they were going to get out of this film and then when they didn't receive them immediately started to say well why didn't i like this as compared to well why was this different than what i thought was coming because like i've said before horror is subjective well, and I think that people also thought it was going to be disrespectful and thought it was disrespectful to make a horror movie in this area about this place that had this incredible tragedy attached to it. And and I thought that, too, honestly, like when I first heard about it, I was like, you know, even even the show Chernobyl, I saw it and I was like, ah, oh, these people who aren't, you know, from the area, they're, they they're not even soviet they they made this show about this thing and this tragedy and you know it kind of rubbed me the wrong way but then i saw it the chernobyl diaries and i mean i'm a sucker for a horror movie i like it so of course i was going to watch it they get their comeuppance in the end like kind of the whole story is that they're these americans and they're kind of you know assholes and they want to see this place where these bad things happen. And they're like, oh, it's so cool. Let's go. Let's do this fun thing. Ha ha ha. And then they don't realize that they need to take this place more seriously. Um, and then they basically get what's coming to them. They they meet a horrible fate because of their attitude towards this place. So it's kind of like, you know, punishing the people in in the film, it's punishing the people who are doing this disaster tourism and not taking it seriously. And then it's also kind of punishing the audience, too. Oh, 100%. Again, when we what is interesting about this is I love that you brought up the Chernobyl HBO show, because, again, like when we're talking about like this era where we were really concentrating on the fact that we were voyeuristically pointing the lens at something upsetting. Uh, this is, for the most part, a pretty 
bl- there's some bloody moments, but you know, when you think of a horror movie in, in comparison, I'd say on the blood scale, this is probably about maybe like a four. Yeah. It's really not that bloody. It's not that disgusting. It's, terrifying terrifying. i was watching it and just walking them walking around that abandoned town the abandoned city was really freaky yeah you know absolutely you know to get really deep into it please do the monster of this film for me is not the well it's interesting that they chose like mutated humans as the monsters right spoiler alert um because for me, the monster of Chernobyl, right, like the deep-seated horror of this place is the radiation, right? It's this yeah. invisible force yeah. that you cannot see, that you don't know, it's, but you know it's there, uh, that can kill you, that will hurt you. And you don't know when that's happening. You don't feel it. And at some point, you know that there's going to be a point of no return, at which point there's nothing anyone can do for you, and you will die a horrible, painful death. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is It is absolutely insane. And then on top of this, you know, again, as they're screwing around and they're doing all these things that they're not supposed to, one of the things that always strikes me as just absolutely nuts in this film, I think, uh, who has the line? I think it's Yori who has the line, nature has reclaimed its rightful home. So yes. in the midst of like in this bubble, um, kind of similar to uh, I don't want to make like the allusions to Stalker, which is another great uh, uh, Soviet film for those who have not seen it. <laughs> um, I haven't seen it. <laughs> oh, no, it's incredible. I'm going to highly recommend that all of you go home and watch Stalker after you leave the woods. Um, that voice is done. It's never. <laughs> Do not worry. <laughs> But but one of the things that we talk about with folk horror and kind of, you know, that dark nature and how dark nature kind of really starts to creep back into our lives. And so post this horrible, horrible thing that humans have wrought upon this land that has caused everything to scatter, we have nature coming back and reclaiming every little piece that it can. You know, we've got they, they've got beautiful shots in this film of you know, there's one where they walk into the kind of like this 1960s atomic, like I want to call it almost like a, like a rest area, like for employees mm-hmm. or something like a lunch area. And in the middle of it, there's this beautiful tree that is pushing its way up through the concrete. And the disaster has taken place 20, 25 years before I want to say the, the film starts. And so in 25 years, these trees have broken through concrete and have continued to conquer, even though everything else around it is dead and radioactive. They are adapting and they are coming back with gusto, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is nuts, you know, and we get to see that not just in the trees. We also see it in the animals. Um, one of my favorite like jump scare moments because the, the film does try to do a few of them because it does know it came out in 2012. <laughs> um, but one of my favorite jump scares that they actually do is with the bear right at the beginning of the film, just because, oh, yeah. yeah, you've got these, these exotic tourists wandering around this abandoned city, which really is just, it's during the day, but still it's just, there's something still about terrifying. it. Yeah, absolutely. It's like coming across uh, uh, like the abandoned zoo in Los Angeles or the abandoned aquarium. And I want to say Maryland. Um, 
Yeah, I don't I don't know if you've ever heard that story about these uh, hikers who came across. It was a completely abandoned aquarium, but what was nuts about it is that in the middle they had thrown formaldehyde into the shark tank. And so this shark was just floating in this formaldehyde in the middle of this abandoned aquarium. Oh my god, is that real? Is that a real thing it that was I could a, it go was see? Very, Oh, well, I guess this was a while ago. And since like it kind of hit the internet, people were going and like throwing backpacks and garbage and stuff into it. So they've since like sent people out and kind of like disassembled the darn thing. But it was like this moment of internet sensation when someone was like, look what I have found and look at what is inside it, because this is absolutely insane. Uh, <laughs> and again, another example of humans kind of going and taking over a space really violating the nature around it and then just abandoning it and seeing yeah. what and it's what got it's got green inferno kind of vibes you know yeah it's got green inferno kind of vibes i always get especially like the first act of the film i always get like big alex garland annihilation energy mm. <laughs> because like everything is really beautiful but of course we also have like crazy fish monsters and weird unidentifiable bears that just run at you um but don't bother to eat you which i love the bear <laughs> does it's not like the bear is chasing them because that would have been like a very horror movie scene but instead it just runs by and scares the shit out of them it yeah. could have bothered it is already fed but on <laughs> comrade bear comrade bear bears are also a huge symbol in russian culture in performing arts uh, do you know why that is or am i asking a silly question um in performing arts i don't know i mean it's a huge symbol in the culture in any case um there's lots of, I mean, Russia is mostly forest, uh, so there's lots of bears there, and um, yeah, Russians do like to train bears to do little tricks and things like that. So, you know, I think it's it's come out of that kind of um, tradition, which I hopefully I think is out uh, going out of style now because of you know animal rights and things like that. Yes, <laughs> one would. Yeah. Hope. Have you ever had an encounter with a bear? No, no, no. Oh man, that's, I see, this is why I love now like getting to meet people from all these different walks of life because I like bears were so common uh, when I was growing up because we have a dumpster that's like down the way from our cabin and that's where you throw out your trash. And so we would always have to bring like cans and stuff to kind of shake in case there were animals that had broken the lock and gotten into the dumpster. Oh. And of course, like the big ones that always wanted to were like mountain lions and bears. <laughs> so yeah, I was I was born in Moscow, which is a big city. And then I moved to L.A., which is also a big city. So, yeah, not a lot of bears. That's entirely fair. Big cities can surprise you, though. I, I have had quite the strange amount of animal encounters in the past like week and a half. And I live in a suburb behind a high school. So <laughs> when I'm uh, not one time I saw a coyote running through Fountain Avenue during rush hour. What? Yeah. That poor little guy. Yeah. Oh my goodness. My goodness. But yeah, I was just curious because like hares, goats, stags, wolves, and in this case, bears, um, you know, animals can become so cultural when it or can become these symbols of culture. Um, and representation in folk horror uh, or in folklore just in general but again is this folk horror like is it because because the 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 chernobyl disaster is you know it happened in 1986 it's pretty recent does that count as folk i would say that if you ask someone do you know what the chernobyl incident is they would say yes and to me, that's what makes it kind of this folkloric story. The same mm. way that when we look at large historical events, 
Um, you know, there there is a certain amount of folklore that kind of gets evoked. Like when we think about Vietnam, um, you know, we think helmets, we think guns, we think uh, uh, punji traps, we think guerrilla warfare. We, we think, you know, terrifying eyes in the night coming across, you know, while it, it, these images have been kind of like burned into our, our brains and our retinas and war, you know, can elicit a lot of this kind of folkloric uh, storytelling because it is terrifying. And so when you have something as simple as a, not as simple in this case, it's a very complicated disaster, but when you have a disaster that shakes the core of a community in such a way that it ripples throughout the rest of their history. I would say that that's folklore. And I'd say that once you start to add that in with, with the elements, you know, of nature, we do have a little bit of, uh, you know, kind of that folkloric element of religion that kind of comes through with how you, you know what? I'm pushing it with religion. I'm just like, you know what? Maybe not this one. But- I was going to say, I, you know, I think, sure, the like legend of like, oh, there are people, the idea that there's like, oh, people mutated by Chernobyl in like a monstery fashion. Yeah. Um, and so they live around. I, I don't know if that's like a thing, like an actual like folk tale that you know, was in the world or if that's just, I mean, you know, something posited by the film. That's entirely fair. I, I like to think of, and I know that this goes kind of more Christianic within it when we think about, I mean, here, actually, you know what, here's the religious angle. I found it. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the story of the Ark in the Bible, hmm. I would say, you know, again, if you are not Christian and see that as somebody else's culture, folklore, or again, just a constant story that people are familiar with in regards to a disaster. I would also say that this film really does encapsulate something that you hit on right at the beginning. And I am so excited that you did, which is that everybody by the end of this film kind of gets their comeuppance for going somewhere that they had no place going. It yeah. is entering those dark woods. It is entering, you know, into a space, a community where you are not necessarily welcome. And if you do not respect what they are doing, maybe just maybe by the end of it, you're going to end up being sacrificed on the altar of something that they believe in. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much what happens. And and so for that reason, I, you know, I can't be, I can't be too offended by it. I can't, you know, well, and also I'm Russian and not Ukrainian, but it's, yeah, I, I like, I like that part. I'm like, yeah, that's what you get. And that my friend is a wicker man. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And it's, Yeah. And and going back to like the monster of Chernobyl, right? There's I yeah. I actually think there's two monsters, right? There's there's the radiation, and then the other monster is the government. Yeah, it's the government that is not only brutal and uncaring about its citizens, but also wildly incompetent. That let this disaster happen, and then uh, tried to cover it up and didn't do any of the right things that it needed to do. And as a result, it was worse than it could have been. Oh, yeah. So, you know, and and I I was actually, you know, I, the, with in regards to the show Chernobyl, right, I had this, you know, initially, my knee-jerk reaction when it came out, I had this thought of like, oh, well, they shouldn't have made this. They're not the right people to make it. Yeah. And... You know, and it's, and in this one, I'm like, oh, yeah, like, the, of course, Americans made it. And I looked it up and there's like no 
Ukrainian or Russian or Soviet people attached to this project at all. Nope. And so, you know, people, you know, people shouldn't make this or that. And then I saw recently this um, trailer for uh, a movie that's about to come out called Amerikatsi. And it's about an Armenian man who goes back to Armenia from the U.S. Uh, to connect with his roots. And he gets put it's like a period piece and he gets put in like a Soviet prison. Oh, wow. You know, and I was watching and I was like, oh, my God, this is like incredible. And, you know, ostensibly, this is like a, a an Armenian-American person making this film. And I realized, and I thought about everything that was happening in Russia right now and everything that's happening in Ukraine. And I was like, oh, you know, if we if if Americans don't do it, no one's going to do it. And specifically, I think, you know, the people who come here who are immigrants and the children of immigrants, like the people that are connected to it, but are American. If they don't do it, if this guy didn't do it, no one else was going to do it. Like if, I, you know, if I don't make a film about what's happening in Russia, then no one in Russia is going to do it. They're living in a bad place. You know? No, that is entirely, entirely fair. And I think that that is a wonderful, wonderful testament to filmmaking, you know, especially because uh, it was, I mean, at least when I was going through school and looking at films, when I finally had access to like libraries of stuff that my dinky little library back home would have never have had, you know, even an inkling to order, Soviet cinema is hard to get a hold of. And it is hard to get a hold of in a capacity where you can watch it on, if you have like anything bigger than a 12 inch screen without it just being pixelated. Yeah. And so it is, you're a hundred percent right because we have a whole section of cinema that deserves to be spoken of more. And that again, it's just, it's, but it's hard to find. It's very hard to find. And so by showing more interest and by showing more interest in the subject matter, uh, matter, hopefully more distribution companies would feel comfortable taking on these projects and trying to restore them so that they can release in other yeah. countries. And then, you know, in regards to the Chernobyl show, um, yeah, I think, it's fine that they made it because the people in Ukraine and in Russia were not going to make it because they can't because the government, they're still dealing with the, with the echoes of that government that caused the Chernobyl disaster and how it has rippled into their government right now. And all of the, the corruption that still hasn't gone away, but those stories need to be told. I do not disagree a hundred percent. And I'm glad that we are here to talk about Yeah. That. Also, Something that I was kind of going through, I don't know, it, it, this is a, not even slightly to the left, this is like a full <laughs> turn from what we were just talking about, but this was also something that I was thinking about when you were asking before, like, what kind of, you know, is this a folk horror film? How does this film kind of, like, fit in with all of this stuff? Uh, do you play video games any at all? I have been known to. Excellent. Most <laughs> excellent. Uh, another thing that I found, every time I watch this movie, I find something new and very interesting about it, which is one of the many reasons why I love it. And I love that you've chosen it. Um, but the second act of this film, like kind of after they find Yuri's radio with the blood trail that just like leads into the building, the second act of this film is 
a video game, the way that it's shot and the way that we're kind of going, we're using, you know, they go in with, with, you know, metal rods and crowbars. And the mission is that they got to find the guy who's got the gun. And then they get the gun. Yeah. And then they get the gun and then they've got the, the, you know, the radio or the radiation counter that they've got with them. Eventually they get a map. And so just, and then they get the wires. Yeah, exactly. So it, it does kind of become this, this, and the way that it's shot, because it's not found footage, it is kind of this shaky camera kind of following us around into this labyrinth. It reminded me very much so of The Last of Us. And so I actually went ahead and I looked up, when did The Last of Us came out? Well, it came out in 2013. So The Last of Us, which was received great critical acclaim, and essentially is a lot of the, the terror of that game is a lot of what we see in Chernobyl Diaries. It's a lot of entering into these abandoned spaces and having to listen and having to look and having one thing that might be coming at you, but you're mostly just trying to survive in this completely decimated wasteland of a city, uh, which I thought was very interesting because, again, video game movies are incredibly difficult because oftentimes it's just, oh, you fight a monster you run down a hallway exposition in a room you run down another hallway another monster uh which is why resident evil is great (laughs) (laughs) isn't that what a movie is it technically is but i would say most movies involve less hallways (laughs) right right you know uh, except for the horror movies Except for the horror movies, you are correct. We do like a different hallway, though, I will say. And in this particular case, you know, it kind of sets up this sandbox that the actors get to play in, not in that improvisational kind of way, but more in this, again, kind of video game universe where they have to kind of travel and push at the walls and see where they can go, where they can't go, where are their dogs, where is the radiation too high, where can they, you know, stumble across where suddenly they can get car parts so that way they can fix their vehicle to to get out of there. It has this very interesting kind of survival notion to it in yes. the just smack dab in the middle for for, <laughs> for fun reasons. But I thought that that was interesting, just that, again, a film that everybody was like, oh, it's going to be a boring found footage film because, you know, a lot of it takes place during the day, which if Midsommar taught us anything, that's apparently... The only way that you can tell if it's a folk horror film, if you <laughs> men at parties. But, um, you can but, have ter- terror during the day. And I, and this yeah. movie proves that. And Midsummer proves that. A hundred percent. And Wicker Man proves that. There's a lot of uh, uh, blood on Satan's claw proves that. You know, when people are dancing naked and sacrificing things in the daylight, I would argue it's a little weirder than that. But yeah, you know, so so we've also kind of got in the middle of this not found footage, not documentary, this kind of like reinventing of how we would be later seeing how we shoot these kind of environments, which is, in my opinion, really cool. Yeah, I think especially for, you know, people who love that kind of stuff for people for filmmakers um and for people creating media like i'm sure they they saw it you know even if it was a box office flop oh a hundred percent you know and that's one of the reasons why i love again that we're revisiting this and also kind of to touch back on one of the things that you were mentioning before about government i wanted to give you like a breather (laughs) we can take a minute we can talk about pedro pascal uh kind of tangentially Uh, (laughs) Uh, so, you know, towards the, the end of the film, 
we we have Paul, who has been the guy who dragged kind of everybody on this this vacation. He was the one who was really pushing for everyone to go. I love that by the time we're like pushing into the last 30 minutes is when he finally reveals that there's this urban legend about the people around here not really being dead. For the record, anytime the words urban legend are used, that's a fancy way of saying modern folklore. <laughs> it really is. It's sure. so stories. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> you not agree? I would love to talk about No, that. I, well, I mean, I feel like so many horror movies have, I mean, isn't Scream, like, isn't a conceit of that, like, an urban legend or... Um, I would say by the time that you hit... This, here's the thing. I love what that you actually have used Scream as this because it made my brain do like a little like fits out. But then here we are. Uh, Scream. What I love about it is that it's an urban legend that was made entirely specifically for Scream <laughs> um, as compared to like an urban legend like the hook handed man or an right. urban. Yeah. Or an urban legend like the Blair Witch. So is um, Candyman folk horror? hundred percent okay oh oh oh, oh so I see i guess the reason that i'm like mm. is is chernobyl for core is because i don't i'm not aware of any like urban legends within like the area surrounding you know ukraine or in the soviet union that that's like oh there's mutant people there but i might be wrong they, they might actually exist so that's that's the thing that i'm not aware of like i don't know if that's, that's entirely fair and that's where i think that as we kind of push with modern folklore we get to play a little kind of similar to the same way that um you know you can kill a vampire any way that you want to because vampires aren't real uh but yeah. we have you know these preconceived notions that it has to be cut off their head garlic stake through the heart no you can kill a vampire whoever you want to um it's still a vampire at the end of the day and and we we have kind of like a, a staple of what that is. And I think that when we think of Chernobyl, we do think of mutation. And we do because radioactive to us means mutation. And yes. it means, you know, in in the most horrible way. <laughs> and so, you know, in that way, I would say that it really does kind of take on it's taking this element of that urban legend, kind of similar to what we see with a lot of vacation horror, like Hostel, where they take this notion of you can be abducted at a hostel. And what happens to you? Well, you might be being sold off to rich people to, to you know, for whatever reason. Into modern slavery, yeah. Into modern slavery, exactly. Into, into human trafficking. Human trafficking. Yeah. And so a lot of folklore is kind of based, you know, think of the old German fairy tales, you know, that's folklore. And that's based in these moralistic tales of warning children about, hey, don't go into the woods. Yeah. Why? Yeah. I don't know. There might be something in there you don't like. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like this film. It was very scary. And because I can't help but wonder because. Yeah. For me, again, the, the mutant humans are not the scariest part of Chernobyl. I, you know, the yeah. part where they're running into the reactor, where they're running down the <laughs> tunnels and their faces are getting all like bloody because of because they're getting radiation burns. That part was scarier to me because they're running away from these monsters, right? Yeah. And into this worse thing. Well, and that part was just, that's more terrifying to me. I agree with you completely. And I love this because I got a very different read out of those scenes, but for kind of like similar, similar sides of the same coin. Um, 
I love the moments when they're running through the facility because I think that if we're looking at how you can take a disaster and turn it into this almost, not into a legend, but how you can talk about what happened in this space that is literally burned into the ground forever and burned into history forever. Uh, When they start to run through the facility, because it is a lot of flashlights in order for us to kind of see what's going on, the walls create this great, almost grayscale effect during certain scenes. Um, One of the scenes that they do it in is when they close that big bulkhead door. There's also a lot of illusion. And I know that this is part of like the the industrial kind of like look of the area, but they do a lot of things kind of reminding me of, of almost being in a submersible a lot of times. And part of that is because you have to shutter things, (laughs) things, <laughs> which is so interesting. But, you know, we have a moment in the car uh, at the at the beginning of Act Two of this film where they're all just kind of like in there in this little tin can. I just I can, can I just rant about that please, scene? Please do. They have the lights on in this car and yeah. there's something outside that they're like, oh, I don't know what it is. And they just mm-hmm. keep the lights on for way too long. And I'm like, well, if you turn that <laughs> off, not only will you be harder to see, but you can also see what's out there. Yeah, I. Yeah. No, <laughs> you're not wrong. You are not wrong. These are not savvy travelers. And no. these are certainly not savvy survivalists. These guys, no. there's a reason why they are backpacking through Europe and not going camping. <laughs> uh, but but yeah. And so, you know, these these little moments of these dumb people like having these you know, things. Uh, but but uh, back to the notion of, you know, just kind of, they, they have to close this bulkhead and this grayscale kind of pops up in this almost like back in time moment as one of the characters is screaming because her boyfriend has been left outside to be eaten by, or to be taken mm-hmm. by, uh, um, you know, the mutants out there. And they begin to kind of recreate these little moments from that point on where the minute that that grayscale kind of hits, it's these moments where you could almost see like a shadow of a ghost of a moment that could have actually happened in this space. Yeah. Um, the another, the other one that I really, really love is when they are in the middle of the control room for, I want to say reactor four, because when they leave the facility later, they are facing three towers, but also four was the one that just was destroyed. <laughs> Little mysteries. It's fine. <laughs> um, I mean, it wasn't... They say online that it was shot in Pripyat, and it was not. <laughs> no, it definitely, definitely was not. Uh, Oren Pelly definitely went on record to be like, we thought about it, that was the original plan, but I guess the... The idea- Ukrainian government would not let them. No, I guess, like, the minute that they found out that these tours were happening, they shut this shit down immediately, which, like, yeah. good for them. <laughs> it's radioactive Correct. <laughs> You would think that that. I mean, even that is just like that. People think that they are the the audacity of the people who went there and did that. That they are so immune to anything bad happening to them, or that they are okay to just walk around and (laughs) where there's radiation. Well, and that actually goes back to that moment in the control room when Paul collapses on his knees, and he just keeps saying that this is all his fault. And it is because it was his idea to freaking come here. But in the middle of that room, just this towering space of of abandoned industry and knowing who stood there before him. Yeah, it's all your fucking fault. It's really just. And it it was all the fault of the people 
who I'm, it was partially the fault of the people who work there, the operators. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's so, so incredibly interesting and so incredibly, again, like this is for me what takes it out of that notion of disaster porn or. Yes. Yes. Because it speaks to the hubris, right? Of humans, right? In so many ways of going to this place they're not supposed to go to, of doing these things they're not supposed to do, of trying to harness this energy and not putting all the safety precautions in and thinking that, oh, it's going to be okay. So the hubris of the operators, the government, the people who go there as tourists, everybody. Oh, 100%. And I think that this leads really nicely, actually, to what do you think of the end of this film? Because we're going to spoil it. <laughs> you like, still it in or like, ah, I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. We're going to spoil the ending. Gear up. This was your choice. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think, honestly... I don't know that it could have ended any other way. I think it's actually kind of perfect because, again, yeah, the government is the monster. And in the end, they are the last monster that she has to face. You know, she's faced the radiation and she's faced the mutant humans. But the last one and arguably the most horrible is the government who just does not care and wants to cover up all of its horrible, horrible mistakes. Oh, yeah. They turn the the urban legend to work for them. So mm-hmm. it's this notion of if you see anything like this, it might be some of the people who have escaped. Uh, uh, you know, this takes it happens from time to time is kind of the illusion that I'm getting from that, which is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the final, want. you know, the final horror of being um, in a place with authority, being at the mercy of a figure of authority who's supposed to be looking out for you and is supposed to do the right thing and who does completely the opposite and you have absolutely no power whatsoever it is an echo of the soviet union oh and and not only that i love the way actually because you know they could have just shot amanda at the very end and they could have you know none of the women they they always show the men dying we see the women dead later and i actually another thing that i noticed on my watch this time around i didn't actually see that any of the mutants who were hunting uh which they do in like weird dog pack formations it's again kind of like harkening back to the you know the way that we kind of take back nature uh in that way but uh, there's no women at any point in time in yeah. the boards. Well, are- there's like a little kid, right? That I've thought about that one. I'm like, who's oh, this little kid? See, and I love a that. A girl, a little girl. It's the little girl, but she looks like a mannequin. And so I think that mm. there's something really interesting to, to I like the idea that they set out bait is something, you know, like, I, I don't <laughs> know. There's a lot to kind of like dig into with that, that I just. Is and so- what are they doing, right? Like, are they yeah. eating the people? Or are they just... We don't see that they're doing anything other than just hunting, which is... For no reason. For no apparent reason. reason. Uh, Until they are thrown into, you know, until they are caught and they are thrown in a cell, which is where Amanda is thrown at the end of this film. And I just love the the look. I also love that her name is Amanda because if we had to pick like famous Amandas who did dumb shit in a foreign country and got in real big trouble for it, <laughs> um, you know, there, there is one. Oh, what was that? Amanda Knox. <laughs> um, what did she do? 
she was, uh, uh, I mean, I believe she has been acquitted, but it was a huge news case that she had murdered her roommate at a hostel. Oh, right. Um, I do remember that. Yes. And so, you know. Yeah, I remember that. Again, when we want to talk about uh, vacation folk horror and the fears of travel, uh, especially, again, in this post-9-11 kind of era of the fears of Americans traveling, because we are not beloved in other places. (laughs) Not only are we not beloved. This is a girl in a place where they are going to lock her away. They are going to throw away the key. And there is no way for her to communicate with anyone, probably for the rest of her life. And so that in its own right, the idea of being in a foreign prison and being, again, locked away, throwing away the key is such a different type of, of sacrifice that you normally see at the end of these films because of hubris, because of, of whatever has brought you to the end of this journey. And of course, this is the only one left. You know, it's either you die or you are forgotten in one of these cells, which yeah. is mortifying. Like so many Soviet citizens once were. Yeah, absolutely. As we can, as we learn more and more every day, it's, it's truly... Again, it, it, I feel like in many ways this film opens up an informative conversation, which is one of the several very many different reasons why I enjoy it. Yeah. Um, well, you know, at the end of... <laughs> Sorry, just one more thing. I think it's also like in this sort of genre of like modern horror where, you know, you have these stories which are kind of like... Uh, you know, it's a scary because like traditional horror, I feel like it's like, oh, it's a haunted house and there's ghosts. And that's can be very scary, but it's not relatable. Right. I don't live in a haunted house. I live in an apartment. That's, That's why fair. I really love The Ring. Right. Because it brought oh. horror right into your living room. Yes. Um, and I think in a way that like Chernobyl Diaries also does that, because this is a thing that just happened not that long ago. You know, there's people yeah. alive who are still you know, dealing with the repercussions of that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 100. There's people who are yet to be alive who are still, who will be dealing with the repercussions of that still. Yeah. Yeah. And even in places as far as Moscow, where I was born, um, you know, a week after the disaster, there was the May Day parades and the government was like, it's fine, go outside. And the winds had carried the radiation. And so, you know, even as places that far away, like my family and a lot of other Russian people I know, we all have thyroid issues. I have three nodes on my thyroid. Wow. I had no idea. That is, wow. And there's no, you know, you can't say definitively that that was because of Chernobyl. I don't think anyone will ever know, but it's kind of too much to be a coincidence. It's part of the story and it's part of the fabric of the story for a reason. You know, when, when something occurs enough in, in nature, in history, in time, you know, that's what goes into the fabric of these legends and these lores. And, and again, what kind of makes these new moments folkloric, which is wild. Well, of course, I say that, but, you know, you've been asking this whole time, does this film qualify <laughs> for a film? So I would love to ask you, uh, would you put it inside of a Wicker Man as a sacrifice to the greater folk horror movie gods? Or do you think <laughs> that it's like a side dish that can like, we can come back to it at the end of the party kind of thing? <laughs> You know, I, I, I think, why not? Why not? Let's put it into folk horror because, you know, I think uh, it's anything that, you know, brings Soviet stuff to popular culture. I'm, I'm a fan of, I think. 
That's entirely fair. Well, you know, if you at home have a different genre that you feel that this film falls into, that's not disaster porn, that's not, uh, um, you know, I guess, what is what is the, the I guess it would be torture porn. Um, every time I'm trying to say exploitative right now, I want to say shark exploitation because it can be sci-fi. I think you can make the argument because, you know, it, yeah. Oh, nuclear well, mutations. I feel like that's science has science-y. been making, Oh yeah. And science has been making its way into folk horror films in very real and interesting ways. You know, that I think for me, I know that one of the things that I love to talk about, and if you ever get a few French 75s in me, <laughs> uh, uh, I always love to go on a rant about how I feel one of the true American folklore inventions out of America, not bringing other peoples over out of America, is gray aliens. <laughs> and oh, yeah. Yeah. We, we, I believe it's between New Mexico and Arizona. That is the most reported alien abduction area in the entire world. And we have built conspiracy theory, which ties in, you know, obviously with, with this one, the conspiracy theory of mutant people running around Chernobyl. Um, but we've created conspiracy theory. We have created, there is a vibe to it. It's that 1950s area 51 kind of vibe to it. And then with the book written by Travis Walton, who is a very famous ab- abductee, mm-hmm. um, the film, uh, um, oh my God, the film, something with fire. Gosh, I'm having a bad memory <laughs> moment. It's fine. I don't know. Uh, Travis Walton's book, The Travis Walton Experience, was turned into a very popular film that came out also in the 90s. I cannot recall the name of it. I will put it in the comments later <laughs> after this episode comes out. Uh, but again, you know, it, it created a, almost a Bible. We expect when we think of, okay, aliens are gray, and then yeah. some of them are Nordic, and they take you up in their spaceship, and they want to see what you're doing, but they might return you. Like, again, it's the vampire argument again. Uh, yeah. You know, it, we don't know necessarily how to kill them, but we know what a vampire essentially is. Um, but an alien might be real, and that's the science fiction of it, which is crazy, crazy cool. Uh, but anyway, cool. So maybe we throw this one under that category of science fiction folk horror more so than even the okay. side of it. Yeah, I'd be because down with that. Yeah. Absolutely. The idea of that kind of mutation, you know, again, hearkening back to something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Again, very American. We fear And that- it's coming from, you know, a thing that happens, like a very real yeah. event. So um that's based in, you know, science. Yeah. So I think in that sense, yeah, it can be like science fiction folk horror. I love that because the point of this podcast is that we're kind of questioning all of these films that normally, you know, does it fit under this category? Does it not fit under this category? Do you agree? Do you not agree? Because folklore is how it kind of resonates within you. You know, it is kind of how you feel. And they're almost diametrically opposed, you know? Yeah. Like science versus folk things. Yeah. Well, and we want to kind of keep it that way, but in so many ways, science came out of all that folk stuff, you know, all of those herbs and weird stuff that you see in a witch's shack would later become, you know, penicillin. (laughs) And we do have folk stories about science. Oh, absolutely. 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 And who knows? Maybe arguably Chernobyl is perhaps one to think about to to throw into those annals. So, Mashka, how can people find you on social media? 
Absolutely. So if you want to watch my TikToks, I'm at Moshka Wolf. And then uh, on Instagram, I'm also at Moshka Wolf. That's Wolf with an E at the end. Um, yeah, those are, those are the only two that matter. That's fair. I'm That's not on fair. Twitter anymore. I, yeah. And at this point in time, I don't even, I don't know what it's called anymore. I just, I know they're going to call it Twitter again in like a year. And I just, I can't be bothered. I understand completely. <laughs> but thank you so much, Mashka. This has been so interesting and informative on so many different levels, not only getting to learn more about your culture and, you know, this connection that you have to this area, but also just the questions and the way that you're probing at folk horror because it deserves that good poking stick and and boy howdy thank i'm happy to be here yay excellent well thank you oh and uh can i just plug another project because i feel like by the time it comes out by the time the episode comes out yes um yeah i'm producing a horror film called the haunted forest shooting in maryland and we are starting production in at the end of october uh, going into November, and hopefully by next Halloween, you'll be able to see it. Oh my goodness. Congratulations. That's incredible. And I cannot wait to see what you bring to the screen. You know, awesome. it might be folk horror. I'm not sure. We'll have to talk Yay! about that later. <laughs> well, I will be there with bells on. Wonderful. Well, thank you all for joining us uh, here on this lovely, lovely evening. I'm going to just make my way back into the mists. They're so comfy cozy this time of night. Until next time, stay folksy, y'all. And I'm going to go eat borscht. Goodbye. Yum. <laughs> <laughs>